both last week and this week, I thought about a portion of Sinclair Ferguson's audiobook uh, on Audible that I had listened to some years ago entitled The Holy Spirit. I think it was a collection of short messages that he had given on the person of the Holy Spirit. And I could remember listening to a certain portion of it in the car with my family on a certain day. You, you, ever, you ever have that happen where there's a certain event and you could remember where you are? I remember it was on a Monday. We were in Jersey and doing what we do. Sometimes we go to Jersey on uh, the day off on Monday. We pull into the parking lot of Wegmans and we're listening to Sinclair Ferguson talk about the person in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he shared how when he was 15 years old, not too long after he had become a Christian, though he had a Christian background growing up, he believes came to Christ around 14 years old. He's 15. And he said that he was sitting in service one day when the minister was teaching on Colossians chapter 1, where Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he said it was the first time that he had heard the New Testament teaching that when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus takes up residence inside of you via the Holy Spirit. And it was the first time that he had ever heard that. He said he was so excited. He said he didn't dance at that moment, but he lingered around church for a while. And then as he walked up the road back to his house, as he was approaching his home, he turned the corner into the street where he lived, and he said he very self-consciously or very consciously looked up and down the street he looked at the windows of nearby houses, all to make sure that nobody was watching him, and he danced home. <laughs> and if you know Sinclair Ferguson, there's something particularly precious about that, because you wouldn't necessarily, and he's pretty reserved in the way that he speaks and so on, but he was so excited. And that gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what it was like for this lame man, when all of a sudden, having been lame for 40 plus years, probably thinking it was always going to be that way, God had a divine appointment for him as he was being carried up to the temple. You remember? Peter and John were going up to the temple. Lame man doubtless gets there a little bit before Peter and John. Peter and John come there, and God was going to change that man's life that day. And you remember, he is healed. Peter tells him, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man received strength into his limbs. And what did he start to do? He stood up, he leaped, he walked, he praised God. And it reminds me of that story of Sinclair Ferguson. I was also thinking about that last week and this week because that's part of my hope for you all when you leave here when the Word of God is preached and taught. Whether it's on a Thursday night or whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's in a Wednesday small group, that there will be something inside of you where you leave wanting to leap and praise God because of His Word. Well, that man, he's fired up. The lame man is no longer lame. We saw that last week. He is healed, and we are going to pick up the story where we left off, but I want to remind you of one thing. Remember, this is the first of a series of dominoes, as it were, to fall. When you go through Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, there are a series of situational dominoes. First, the lame man is healed. His healing provides a platform for Peter's preaching, which we're about to see today and, Lord willing, next week. Peter's preaching is going to provide an occasion for the persecution of John and Peter, particularly in them being arrested. And that will become an occasion for the church's later praying, which we're going to see at the end of Acts chapter 4. So right now we look at, if you will, the second domino. The healing provided a platform for the preaching. 
And we'll see that shortly, but we get into our text in Acts chapter 3, verse 11, where we read, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So I want you to see the kind of cinematic glance that we have here. We got two images happening in verse 11. The first image is that of the lame man holding on to Peter and John. Now, I don't think he was holding on to Peter and John because he was trying to get his bearings and trying to figure out how to walk. He had already been walking. He had already been leaping. He, he was fine. I think what's happening here is that he's holding on to Peter and John out of a sense of amazement, out of a sense of gratitude. Maybe he wanted to stay near Peter and John, even as the demoniac out of whom Jesus casted demons wanted to stay near him. You could look at Luke chapter 8, verse 38. Maybe in this moment, he's just so excited, he's holding on to them, a mix of excitement, rejoicing, and maybe he's kind of making a statement to Peter, John, and to everybody else, like, I'm with these guys. So I want you to see that image. That's one cinematic glance, if you will. This man is holding on to Peter and John in that moment. But then the other glance comes in the second half of the verse. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So the other glance you have is people moving in the direction of where the lame man and Peter and John are. And I don't know if you've ever been to uh, a golf event or you've watched it on TV, and you can see sometimes there's quiet at a tee. There's quiet sometimes on the putting green, and somebody's about to putt, and it's very quiet. But then all of a sudden, because something good happens on another hole, let's say somebody makes this incredible putt from a long distance, or somebody chips in from outside of the green, and all of a sudden you hear this roar from the crowd. It's silent by one green, and all of a sudden you hear a roar in the other direction. I feel like that's something of what was happening here. Because you could imagine the worshipers going into the temple in a kind of quiet, pious way. But then all of a sudden, at another location in the temple, they start hearing praising. Doubtless many heard this lame man praising God. I don't know what exactly he was saying, but he was praising God. And then you probably heard the buzz around the crowd of people who were near him. Wow, how did this happen? Doubtless people probably began to praise God as well. And the crowd moves to where the noise was. And they were all greatly amazed. I want you to notice what's happening here. God in his providence is providing Peter with a crowd yet again. He did this on the day of Pentecost, right? The miracle of Pentecost served to provide a platform for Peter's Pentecostal preaching, if you will. And that's what's happening right here. The crowd is gathering. And what the God of the universe is doing in this moment is he is furnishing an opportunity for all of those who are there not to be simply greatly amazed at a miracle, and Peter will unpack the miracle, but that they might be greatly amazed at the Savior as Peter unpacks who the Savior is. I guess if there would be a pastoral application in this moment, I think it could be something like this. Be mindful of, be thankful for those times in your life when all of a sudden God puts you in a position where there are people gathered around you to hear the gospel. You might be at a family event and somebody asks you, how was church today? And all of a sudden, right there around the table, you have an opportunity to tell people about the holy and just one who died for sinners like us that you're going to hear about today in Acts chapter 3. Be mindful of and be thankful for the opportunities you have. Well, 
Back to the text. You'll notice still in verse 11, all of this happened in the porch, which is called Solomon's. Now you might hear the word porch, and you might think of a section right outside of like a ranch house with a rocking chair or two. This wasn't that kind of porch. This porch here was an eastern portion of the temple that went by that name. Uh, different opinions as to whether or not it was there from years ago when Solomon had built it, a kind of remaining portion, although the temple had been burned and so on. I want you to note something that's very interesting, though. Look at the language here, specifically the verb tense. In the porch, which is called Solomon's. This is one of the arguments for the early dating of the book of Acts, that it was written in the first century before the temple had been sacked in 70 AD. Because Luke didn't say, you know, the, the porch which was called Solomon's, like it's not there anymore. No, it's the porch which is Solomon's. So he wrote this at an early time, and when his readers got it, they knew, yeah, it's still there. Because this was before 70 AD. So that spot, Solomon's porch, just to remind you, it had some history to it. I want to call, you to some, call your attention to some immediate history. In John chapter 10, verse 23, we're told, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Remember what happened there? It was in that text, in that context, that Jesus said, I am the Father, are one. It was in that context that Jews there took up stones to stone him. And imagine, I don't know, I can't say this for sure, imagine if in this moment that some of the very Jews who were there on that day, when Jesus was there, who took up stones to stone him, imagine if they're there in this moment. I don't know if they are or not, but I like imagining the possibility of them being there. And all of a sudden, they're going to get to hear about the forgiveness that was available to them through Jesus Christ. Well, now Peter sees this. He recognizes the opportunity. He also perceives some misdirected attribution of the miracle. And he's going to provide clarification. Verse 12 reads, So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? So earlier, Acts chapter 3, verse 5, it was the lame man who looked intently upon Peter and John. Now we have the crowd looking intently upon Peter and John. Peter recognizes this as an opportunity. He addresses the crowd with a familiar address. Men of Israel. Men of Israel. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. I think there's some significance in that in light of what's coming. We'll get there in a moment. He tells them that, or asks them the question, why do you marvel at this? Now, I wonder if the reason why he was saying that is because the men of Israel knew what it was like to see miracles. Like, you've seen this during Jesus' ministry. Remember when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which he did in the presence of all those people who were there on Pentecost. So I wonder if Peter's saying, why do you marvel at this? As though to say, like, this is such an uncommon thing. You saw Jesus of Nazareth doing this throughout his earthly ministry. And then he asked them another question, which was essentially a reproof. Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now I think Peter is appealing here to a popular belief of the day that went something like this, that through one's own holiness, God would hear an individual and then such ones could perform miracles. 
You could look at John chapter 9, verse 31 to see a, a reference that would in some way support that. Now think of what Peter could have done here. If Peter wanted to go against the facts, if he wanted to establish a reputation, if he wanted to increase his fame and pursue his own honor, he could have said, you see everybody? That's what personal piety will do for you. He could have written a book, The Power of Personal Piety. Now, there's a place for personal piety. There is. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, right? Pastors are told to watch their lives and doctrine closely, and in doing so, they will save both themselves and their hearers, that God uses that as a means to his appointed ends. You look in 2 Peter chapter 1. We are to add all of these different things to our faith, to our faith, virtue, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and so on. And if we do those things, we will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a place for personal piety and the pursuit of fruitfulness. But it is not the means by which miracles are begotten. That is by the power and the grace of God, and that's what Peter is calling attention to here. And in doing that, he provides a kind of pattern for us. He is redirecting people's attention from himself and from John to God and to Christ. And I think that's instructive for us. You serve in a local church long enough, and if you take the mindset of a servant, people are going to appreciate you. People, myself included, are going to be very thankful for you. And I am so, so thankful for people in this place. And I think one of the things that you have to be mindful of when you serve and people are legitimately, understandably, rightfully appreciative of what you're doing is that you want to be one who directs praise and honor to where it belongs. To the God who has saved you and who works through you. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Well, it's as though Peter was saying, we are not the cause of this man's cure, but I'll tell you who is. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Do you see the significance in that? It's as though he's telling the Jewish people, men of Israel, it's the same God that we've known about. The God of our fathers. This isn't like some new deity that we're about to proclaim to you. It's the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is kind of language that Jesus used in the temple precincts. Matthew 22, verse 32. It wasn't something strange. It was the same God of the Old Testament who was working right here in what we know as the New Testament. He was the source and the cure for this man. So he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. So if you were going to ask the question, why did God do this? Why did God heal this man? Well, one reason, the ultimate reason, primary reason, was to glorify his servant Jesus. Now, you and I might not catch this, but when that word servant is said, his servant Jesus, to Jewish ears, if you were playing like name that tune, as it were, and you hear the word servant, you're thinking of the servant songs of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 49, in Isaiah 52, in Isaiah 53, there was promise to come this servant who would redeem Israel, who would be a light to the Gentiles, who would suffer and yet would be exalted. So when he says that, we might not pick it up. We just think servant. And he was like, you know, he took the form of a servant. He washed his disciples' feet. John 13, no, 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 no. There are messianic implications to that title. 
When he says he glorified his holy servant Jesus, I just want to run through some scriptures with you of what probably, or at least should have, come into their minds the moment they heard the word servant. Speaking of the servant, in the first servant song of Isaiah, when I say servant song of Isaiah, I'm talking about specific portions of Isaiah where either, either the Messiah speaks through Isaiah or is spoken about by Isaiah. Does that make sense? Servant songs of Isaiah are certain portions of Isaiah where the Messiah himself is speaking right through Isaiah or he's being spoken about by Isaiah. Okay, so in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Isaiah speaking, but it's Yahweh the Father speaking about Yahweh the Son. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. That's Isaiah 42, verse 1. If you looked at Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, you'd see that that's applied to Jesus. Furthermore, this servant who would come would be the suffering servant. We're told in Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold my servant shall deal prudently. So this is Isaiah speaking, but it's the Father speaking through Isaiah here. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled or lifted up and be very high. So you have this picture of the Messiah being one who is going to be in a position of authority, one who is going to be praised, one who is going to be lifted up in a position of power and acclaim. But then you also find out in Isaiah 53 that this one was going to suffer, this servant, there's so much you could read from Isaiah 53. I call your attention to Isaiah 53, verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You look at Isaiah 53, this servant was going to die. He would make his grave with the, with the wicked, yet with the rich at his death. That's who the servant was. Now, one other thing I want to tell you quickly is because some people might say, particularly those of a Jewish background, might say, the servant here is not the Messiah. The servant is actually Israel. And the thing I want you to see, I want to call your attention to Isaiah 49, verses 3 through 6. And you'll see that this servant, who is identified as Israel, was called to redeem Israel. He is the one, because Israel can't redeem itself. But this Messiah, this servant who embodied all that Israel should have been, he was the one that was called to redeem Israel. In Isaiah chapter 49, beginning at verse 3, we read the following. And he said to me, this is the Messiah now speaking through Isaiah, talking of the Father here. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord, or Yahweh, and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, watch this, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. That's another identification for Israel. So that Israel is gathered to him. So this servant who is identified as Israel, the servant who would die and who would suffer, he is the one who is called to bring Jacob or Israel back to the Father. He is the one called to gather Israel. 
He goes on and he says, For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the servant that was called to redeem Israel and to be a light to Gentiles all over the world. It's speaking of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Peter says that God glorified his servant Jesus, this background doubtless was in the mind of many Jews. I want it to be in your mind when you hear these words. Don't just think servant like he took the form of a servant and washed his disciples' feet and so on. He came not to be served but to serve. That's all true. But when that word servant is used here, the connotation is Messiah, the promised one. All right, back to the text. Behold the contrast. There are quite a few of them here. God glorified Jesus, and what did Peter tell the people that they did? He described Jesus as the one that they delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. See the irony there? See the contrast there? God glorified him. You denied him. God glorified him, and you delivered him up to Pontius Pilate. When Pilate, when he was determined to let him go, now, one of the things that's really interesting, if you go through Luke chapter 23, you'll see that Pilate had his mind set on trying to release Jesus. It, it's, like, it's like he did not want to sentence Jesus to death, and he's looking for ways out. Just to provide you with a little bit of history, in case you're not aware, I'm going to walk you through some of Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, when we look back at this account, we see multiple declarations of Jesus' innocence. And we see how Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. Okay, early on, Luke chapter 23, verse 4, Pilate tells the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Luke 23, verse 4. But the people became more fierce. They weren't settling for that. And they began to say, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. That's verse 5. Now, when Pilate hears the word Galilee, he's like, okay, that's, that's good. I think I might have a way out here. He hears Galilee, and he's thinking, is this man a Galilean? So he inquires, is this man a Galilean? Finds out he is a Galilean. He's like, good news for me. That's Herod's jurisdiction. I'm going to wash my hands of this before he washes his hands later. I'm going to send this man to Herod. So that's what he does. He sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod eventually sends Jesus back to Pilate. You see that in verse 11. Now after that, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. Luke 23, verse 13. And this is what he said to them. Verse 14 and 15. He says, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither Herod. For, and then some manuscripts render, he sent him back to us. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Now, I want you to notice something. When we went through our study of the Gospel of Luke, one of the interesting things to notice is that as we got closer to Jesus dying as the spotless lamb, even Jesus' enemies were attesting to his spotlessness. Remember Judas. 
Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate says multiple times, I find no guilt in this man. Herod says, I find no guilt in this man. There's a Roman centurion. After Jesus dies, he says, truly, this was a righteous man. It's as though leading up to Jesus being the Passover lamb, sacrificed as our Passover offering, God provided all of these additional witnesses, not from people who were necessarily friendly to Jesus, saying, he's spotless. He's without guilt. And as J.C. Ryle has noted, because he was without guilt, the Father could say of us, even as Pilate said of Jesus, I find no fault in them. Because Jesus bore our faults upon the cross. Well, back to the narrative here. Herod found nothing deserving of death in him and so on. And Pilate's plan, because he had found nothing deserving of death, his plan was to chastise and release Jesus. You see that in Luke 23, verse 16. Please note, that wasn't gracious. That was wicked. He found nothing in Jesus worthy of punishment or guilt, but what was he going to do? To pacify the Jews, to satisfy that crowd, the religious leadership that was around him. I'll chastise him. We'll beat him. We'll scourge him, and then we'll let him go. Now, furthermore, we find out it was a custom that the Romans honored during that time whereby one prisoner would be released to the Jewish people. And Pilate's intention was to release Jesus. But you come to find out that the people wouldn't have it. What did the people say? They all cried out at once saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Because remember, they had an option. You could have Barabbas released to you or you could have Jesus. Who's Jesus? The sinless, spotless Son of God who went about doing good healing people, and freeing those who are oppressed from the devil. Or you could have Barabbas released to you. The guy who in the insurrection, in, in the rebellion, was not only a robber, but committed murder. And Peter's going to call attention to this in his message right here. Pilate was determined to let Jesus go, but what did they want? They wanted a murderer to be released. So they began to cry out, once again saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And Luke noted how Pilate was wishing to release Jesus. Luke 23, verse 20. So what Peter is saying right here jives with what Luke wrote in his gospel. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. So then Pilate for a third time said, why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Luke 23, verse 22. But then Luke told us that they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. Luke 23, verse 23. This was an act of wickedness by Pilate. He didn't do justice. He did injustice. He bowed to the crowd. And that was an act of wickedness. But it's in line with what Peter was saying. So Peter continued in verses 14 and 15 read as follows. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. Do you notice how Peter's driving home their guilt? I want you to see something here. Peter wasn't exactly seeker sensitive. He wasn't fearing that words like sin or guilt could be like a turnoff to his hearers. Don't use those words, sin or guilt. You know, let's just try to get them into a door. 
Let's try to get them into a small group Bible study where somebody could very gently imply that perhaps at some point in time they did something wrong. That's not what Peter's doing here. He's being honest with them. You'll see he's also compassionate. He's going to use the word brethren a little bit later on. But right here he's telling the people, people who were legitimately guilty for their part in Jesus' death, he says, but you denied, disowned, disavowed, repudiated Jesus. You didn't own him, as it were, as your Savior, as the Messiah. You repudiated him. That was probably well represented in the words of the chief priests when Peter, uh, when Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. We repudiate him. We disown him. We disavow him. But nonetheless, in the actions of many in the crowd, they did that in one way or another. They denied the Holy One. Think of the irony of this. What the demoniac got right. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. That demon who said, I know you. And called Jesus the Holy One. The Holy One of God. Yet the people did not recognize Him. And they didn't see Him as that. Now, Holy One, I want you to know this too. When Peter says, but you denied the Holy One, that's a messianic title. Psalm 16, verse 10 promised that the Lord's Holy One would not be allowed to see corruption, which implied that he would die. He would go in the grave, but his body wouldn't be in there long enough to be corrupted, to decay. God promised that his Holy One, a title for the Messiah, would not be in the grave long, because he would not see corruption. So when Peter says servant, you're thinking messianic title. When Peter says you denied the Holy One, you're thinking, oh, there's another messianic title. You see that in the Gospels as well. John, for instance, John chapter 6, verse 69, reading from the ESV, records Peter as saying, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's a messianic title. All right, I want to take a moment here for a quick apologetic aside. I'll explain to you what I mean. This title here, Holy One of God, is a title that belongs to Christ. It's a title that, of course, is attributed to the God of Israel. But I want you to know that one of the many problems, I don't say this in a mean way, I don't say this in a condescending way, but one of the many problems with the doctrines found in Roman Catholicism, as explicitly taught in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is that Mary is called the All-Holy One. I want you to hear this for yourself. I'll get to that quotation in a moment. I'm going to read to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church so that you can know what it's taught and why we think it's a very big problem, why it's wrong, why it's error, why it's heresy. In Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph um, 2030, we read, It is in the church, in the communion with all the baptized, that the Christian fulfills his vocation. It goes on a little bit. And then it goes to say this in the middle, kind of before the end. From the church, he learns the example of holiness and recognizes its model and source in the all-holy Virgin Mary. Now the problems with that statement are legion, for they are many. First, Mary is called the example of holiness. Now, I wouldn't have a problem if they said Mary was an example of holiness. 
holy living. I would want to add qualifications and nuance and so on, but to say that she is the example of holiness, that's something the scripture does not do. The scripture clearly teaches that Jesus is that example, for instance, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Those who claim to live in him must walk as Jesus did, not walk as Mary did. And over and over we see, Old Testament and New Testament repeatedly, God say, be holy even as I am holy. God is the pattern. God is the model. God is the example. Christ is the model. Christ is the pattern. Second, and you probably caught this when I was reading that quote from the Catechism, Mary is called the source of holiness. Again, I'm not saying this in any kind of mean way. I have no ill feelings towards people who are, you know, in Roman Catholicism. I was in Roman Catholicism. I would want everyone who's in Roman Catholicism to know what the Catechism says and to say, wow, that doesn't line up with the Scripture. I want to come to saving faith and trusting in Christ alone and so on. But please know, she is not the source of holiness. When you go through the Scriptures, the New Testament repeatedly tells us that our holiness is rooted in the triune God and in the work of Jesus Christ. Some examples. Christians have been, quote, made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified or made holy through the word of God. John chapter 17, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 implies that as well. Quite explicitly, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus is identified as the one who sanctifies. And one of the things you see over and over in the Catechism, and we saw this in our study on Thursday nights of Roman Catholicism, is that some of the titles that are attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Catechism are attributed to Mary when they should not be. And one of them right here is to call her the source of holiness when the Scripture does not do that. Third, you'll notice that Mary is called the all-holy virgin in what I read to you. A little bit more. This kind of language is used later on in the catechism as well, where Mary is called the all-holy one. Just in case you're not familiar, listen to paragraph 2677. I'll read the entirety of the paragraph so that you can see what the catechism of the Catholic Church teaches. It reads, this paragraph, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, so it's unpacking the Hail Mary. It says, by asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. We give ourselves over to her now in the today of our lives and our trust broadens further already at the present moment to surrender the hour of our death wholly to her care. May she be there as she was at her son's death on the cross. May she welcome us as our mother at the hour of our passing to lead us to her son Jesus in paradise. Now one of the many problems with that paragraph right there is it's attributing to Mary attributes that are only found in the living God. Say, for instance, his omnipresence. Mary cannot be with every person who dies in Christ and goes to heaven. She can't be. She's a human being. She's relegated to one place at one time. God is the one who's omnipresent and is everywhere. But as far as calling her the all-holy one, Yahweh is called the holy one of Israel. 2 Kings 19, verse 22. 
He is the one whose name is holy, Isaiah 57, verse 15. He is the one who is majestic in holiness, Exodus 15, 11. No one is holy like him, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. And fittingly, the Son of God shares the nature of the Father. So he is called the Holy One. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, what we're studying. Even unclean spirits knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. So I don't say that in any kind of mean way. I just want you to know the truth. And the Catechism includes a lot of statements like that that are either overtly erroneous or are overtly blasphemous. Back to the text. Jesus is not only called the Holy One, He is called the Just. The Dikaion is the word that's used there in the Greek. Neat thing to note about this. It's another Messianic title. If you looked in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, you would see that this title, which means righteous or righteous one, just or just one, is used in Isaiah 53.11. Same Greek word, Dikaion to refer to the righteous one, the Messiah. So the people had an opportunity to walk back their repudiation when Pilate was giving them out, but they did not want to do that. They asked for a murderer to be released to them. We saw that already, but Peter's making reference to it here in Acts 3.14. And look at the irony that follows. They asked for a murderer, and what did they do? They killed the prince of life. See the ironies here, the contrasts? They wanted a murderer to be released, but they asked that the prince of life be killed. They took away uh, the life of the one who gave life, the one in whom there was life. They killed the prince of life. That word for prince could be rendered as the leader, originator, could be rendered here as prince. And what did God do? God raised him from the dead. You look at the end of verse 15. Peter is reminding the people, we saw this happen. John and I were there. And we saw that he was alive. We are the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. That brings us to verse 16. Peter goes on and he says, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, a couple things to note. Some people are divided as to whether or not Peter is speaking here of the faith that he exercised in John in the man's healing or the faith that the man exercised in believing the words rise up and walk and actually doing that. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I believe that's the position of F.F. Bruce. Um, I would think, if anything, it would be more immediately the lame man who was in view, but I don't think that um, those options are mutually exclusive because they both, I believe, exercise faith. John and Peter had faith by God's grace to know that this man would be healed and raised. And this man, I believe, was made strong by the grace of God to receive faith, to believe as well. Notice the language here, too. How does this faith come? Yes, the faith which comes through him. I'm telling you, once you see the doctrines of grace, you start going through the Bible and you're like, they're everywhere. This faith wasn't found in the man. It wasn't found in Peter and John. It's the faith that comes through him. Peter even picks up on this in his epistle. When he's writing his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he described those who believe as those who believe through him. Those who believe in God, that God raised up the Son, 
that God did what he promised he would do? He says they believe through him. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Notice Peter's also reminding the people that this wasn't fraudulent. He has perfect soundness in the presence of you all. This is the same man whom you see and know. You know this man, and you could actually tell he's fully healed right now. So you knew he was lame for a long time, and now you see he's fully healed. And Peter is calling their attention to that. Perfect soundness. And that faith came through Christ. I would want you to note that Jesus is not only the object of faith, he is, as the writer of Hebrews said he was, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Is he the object? Oh, yes, he is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's also the author of it. If you have it, it's because he gave it to you. And you glorify him for it. And if you keep it, it's because he's keeping you. He's the perfecter of it. So that in all things, God might get glory through him. Well, in verses 17 through 19, we read the following. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Notice here the compassionate tone, right? Verses 14 and 15, he's telling them honestly, you killed the Holy One. You delivered him up to Pilate. So he's speaking honestly. But then here he's also speaking very overtly in a compassionate way. Yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance. And even though they did it in ignorance, I want you to note they were still guilty. And even in the Old Covenant, you had uh, sin offerings for unintentional sins. You still bore guilt. But you might say the degree of guilt was worse when you sinned against light and you sinned against knowledge. Paul spoke about his rebellion against Christ as being that which he did in ignorance. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, if the rulers of this world knew, they didn't know that they had crucified the Lord of glory and so on. They did it in ignorance. At least some of them did. And some had greater degrees of light that they rebelled against. Verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. I want you all to see this briefly. I'm just going to give you a quick sampling. I'm not telling you everything that is said in all of the prophets, every reference I could give you. But I want you to see some of what was said concerning the Messiah. Do you understand that if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, which he is the Messiah, but if he wasn't the Messiah, you would need somebody else who would actually be born in Bethlehem. You would need somebody else who would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You would need somebody else who would be numbered among transgressors. Somebody else who would make his grave with the wicked, yet somehow with the rich at his death. You would need somebody else who was pierced. You would need somebody else who would die. You would need somebody else whose clothes were gambled for and whose garments were divided. You would need somebody else who, as he was dying, experienced thirst. You would need somebody else who would be resurrected from the dead after he poured out his soul to death. Do you see how unique this was that Jesus Christ fulfilled these prophecies? That's why Peter's calling attention to this. He fulfilled them. There's no prophecy concerning the suffering of the Messiah that has not been checked every one of them and if you reject him as the messiah you have to look in the scriptures and say somebody else has to do this and how do we do this without a temple because these things had to happen before the temple was destroyed and so on he is the one who fulfilled these things and maybe you could appreciate it a little bit more when you start looking at that list and you start saying who in the world could fulfill these things now 
Who in the world could fulfill those things then? Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, no one. But notice the language. Peter's saying it unashamedly. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ would suffer, you list them out. I just listed some for you. You go through Psalm 22. You go through Psalm 16. Go through Isaiah 53, and there are other places and so on. You make a list, he checks every box. And no one else will ever check those boxes. There's only one who has. And so in light of that, in light of the one who has come, as was foretold by God through the prophets, Peter then goes here, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Language more literally, repent and turn. Stop going down the path that you're on. Stop living in rebellion against the Messiah. Stop rejecting him. Stop living like you are your own Lord. Repent. Have a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. See Jesus Christ as Lord and turn to the living God. Turn from the direction that you're going. Look to God and see that he has fulfilled his word in his son and receive the son as your sacrificial offering. And the language here is beautiful. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now, the language here is beautiful. You would look on the, um, uh, the children's bulletin, and you'll see there's a question there to illustrate what is happening here, what is being illustrated in the language that Peter's using. I want you to picture a couple of things. Picture a garment that has been so stained, stained by ink, and is just so stained. And the only way that that garment could be cleaned is through repentance and faith, repentance towards God and faith in Christ, and then ultimately by the blood of Christ. And all of a sudden, that garment that was stained with sin is made clear and white as snow. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. Maybe my favorite illustration of this is found in language that's found in Colossians 2. As we close, I just want to remind you of it. In the ancient world, if somebody was... Um, sentenced to death in the Roman culture, you would see, at least oftentimes, maybe every time, like was the case with Jesus, over his head was put the thing in which he was guilty for. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's what he was guilty of. I've often imagined that if I were to die for my sins, you wouldn't just have one thing placarded over my head you would have what would seem like a never-ending scroll flowing from wherever I was executed from. I can't number my sins. You can't number your own sins. Only God can. There's a certificate of indebtedness, you might say, that we have to God. We have to give an account for every one of our sins, right? If we are outside of Christ, every idle word that we have ever spoken in judgment, everything we have to give an account for when the books are open on the great white throne of judgment, so if you start imagining how long that list is for you, and I wouldn't encourage you to do it for too long. It could be depressing. But, <laughs> but, but you want to do it a little bit and say, like, wow, if my sins were numbered, like, they're more than I could even count. Look how long that list would be. And yet, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's as though that scroll gets rolled up and cleared. And you say, where is my certificate of indebtedness to God? It's clear. It's clear. If anything, I owe him love and praise and worship because all of my sins have been paid for. He has washed away my guilt. It's the good news of the gospel. It's why everyone who is in Christ should leave here leaping for joy. <laughs>
And if you are not in Christ, the invitation is to you today. Maybe first time in church. And this is going to be that moment which is a change for you. You have that moment of turning where you were on going down the road and all of a sudden you go home like Sinclair Ferguson was going home. You get out of your car, you look around, you're wondering if anyone's looking, and you're like, I am saved. God has forgiven me. All of my past, present, and future sins have been washed away to be remembered no more. The certificate of indebtedness is clear because the blood has washed them out. Again, just the language, call your attention to the language and I'll close. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. There we go. And the, the timer is up. <laughs> <laughs> we have much to rejoice in today. Uh, praise be to God. Let's go to our God in prayer. And then we'll continue with um, Peter's amazing message, uh, Lord willing, next week. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the Holy One and the Just One, the Prince of Life who experienced death so that we might have eternal life. Thank you for the One who was spoken of by the prophets and who came and fulfilled every prophecy concerning the suffering of the Messiah. Thank you, Father, for your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, in light of the Holy One, help us as a result of such grace just to want to live holy lives. In light of his righteousness, help us by your grace to want to practice righteousness in light of the fact that the righteous one died for all of our unrighteousness. In light of the fact that the Prince of Life tasted death for us, help us to walk through the rest of this day and by your grace this week, remembering that you so loved us that you sent your son to taste death for us. How amazing you are. And Father, if there'd be anyone in this room today who has not come to that place and doesn't have the confidence that their sins have been blotted out, may there be that repentance, that change of mind that results in a change of behavior and change of direction where they look to Jesus and they say, I believe that His blood washes away my sin. I believe He took the punishment that I deserve and that He rose from the grave victoriously, that He is the Son of God who died for me. Oh, Father, may it be I can imagine heaven rejoicing, even as your word tells us, over one sinner who repents and has their sins blotted out. Thank you, Father, for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.